Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. In this episode, I'm going to talk with Lincoln Project senior advisor and veteran political consultant Stuart Stevens about his brand new book, It Was All a Lie. Stuart is considered one of the preeminent Republican political operatives of his generation and has spent decades electing Republicans at every level. He's worked with George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, Bob Dole, and Chuck Grassley, just to name a few. He's a contributor to The Daily Beast and recently published his eighth book, It Was All a Lie, which is available starting today. It is an examination of a party that has lost its moral and political compass. So before we dig in, Stuart, and I'm so glad that you're taking the time today, I have heard that you have the best win-loss percentage in the world of Republican campaign consulting. Is that true? Well, you know, I used to say that in pitches, and then we actually had uh, someone who worked for us figured it out, and it turns out it is true. Um, so uh, that that would be of uh, people in my area, which is, uh, you know, media consulting, um, which has changed a lot since I started. But, um, yeah, as media consultants, uh, that's true. But, of course, you know, Ron, the secret to success as a political consultant, I discovered early on, is to work for people who are going to win anyway and just don't screw it up. So uh, <laughs> it's sort of like being a you know baseball manager, it, like helps to have like really good players. Um, so uh, I think most of the credit for that is, uh, is, if not all, it's just due to the fact that I was lucky enough to get really good clients. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. So before we do, I just want to give our listeners some general background information. So could you walk us through maybe a, a brief history of your work in Republican politics? Sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. I'm actually a seventh generation Mississippian. In the bad old Mississippi burning days in the 1960s, when I was a kid, my family was close to uh, a guy who was running for governor uh, named William Winter. He was running in the Democratic primary for governor. There really only was the Democratic Party in Mississippi then. Everything in Mississippi then, and in a way it still is, but then it was very obvious, was defined by race. Um, and you know where you stood on race was sort of the definition of your candidacy. Um, and Winter was running against the last avowed segregationist who was elected in Mississippi, a guy named John Bell Williams. So... Um, I was a kid and did the things you do as a kid in the campaign, uh, you know, walk precincts, hung around with them some. Um, and that uh, winner lost that race. Um, but I had this experience in it that really just sort of uh, drew me to politics. Um, winner was uh, what we would have called then a moderate on race. Um, uh, pretty progressive on race, which means uh, he was not a segregationist. Um, and he got a lot of death threats. Uh, and we know this in, in part, uh, they've been recorded because Bobby Kennedy like uh, wiretapped everybody and they have these recordings. Um, and uh, I remember when uh, one Friday night uh, when I was with Winter and my father was traveling with him then, um, 
and he was in a, a locker room of a high school stadium down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And it was kind of a foggy Friday night. And he got in this very specific threat that if he went out and spoke to this crowd in this you know, high school football stadium, he would be shot. And, you know, like most governor's races then and now, he winner didn't have any formal security. But he did have a group of sort of law enforcement types who um, were trying to help, trying to keep him alive. My father was one of those. He had been an FBI agent. Um, and I can remember vividly, you know, I was just a kid, these men trying to convince William Winter not to give the speech. And uh, Mrs. Winter was there. And it was a very dramatic moment. And, you know, I was just a kid sitting there watching this. And, and Winter, who's a very tough guy, um, refused uh, not to give it. And somebody went out and came back uh, to the car, went out to the car and came back with a bulky bulletproof vest and he put it on. And these guys went out and got rifles out of their cars and st- stuck them under their like raincoats. And then Winter walked out yeah, and, and to give the speech. I thought it was the bravest thing I, I'd ever seen. And if that was politics, it was just so dramatic and compelling. And as it turned out, they later discovered there was a guy there who, who was going to shoot Winter and probably didn't in part because um, he sort of had this little posse of bodyguards. So that was uh, how I was drawn to it. Um, I worked as a page in high school on Capitol Hill for a congressman. Um, and uh, I'd always been interested sort of in th- politics, film and writing in my life. So uh, I, I went to school far too long, but I studied English. Um, and undergrad and grad school. And then I uh, went to UCLA film school uh, to get an MFA. And when I was in uh, at UCLA, the guy who had been chief of staff to the congressman that I had been a page for ran for Congress. And that congressman, whose name was Stead Cochran, was running for the Senate. And he, uh, Cochran was the first Republican elected to Congress in Mississippi since Reconstruction. And he was uh, this progressive, uh, youngish lawyer, sort of in opposition to the old line Democratic Party in Mississippi, which then was defined by these sort of giants of segregation, uh, Jim Eastland and and John Stennis. Um, So um, this guy who had been chief of staff called me up and we we got to be friends when I was a page. Um, He was running against. Senator Stennis's son for the congressional seat. So nobody thought he had a chance. Um, and he'd never run for anything before. He'd just been a Capitol Hill staffer. So he didn't have any money. And he basically said, well, I'm doing this and you have to make commercials for me. And I said, well, like, it's great, except like, I don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. <laughs> I'm in film school. Um, he said, it doesn't matter. You have to do it. So um, I did. And he ended up winning. It had nothing to do with anything I did. He was just the right person at the right time. Um, and then I discovered that people would hire me to uh, make commercials for him. And nobody wanted to hire me to write then. So I could kind of go work in campaigns and do it sort of like migrant labor work. And I started out working for Republicans in Mississippi. And the way it goes, you know, once I, if you start out on one side of the street, it's very hard to change. Um, so. I kept doing it. Then I got to a point where people would hire me to write, but I still liked the political consulting. 
It was very different than writing. You know, she's very solitary. I like the fact that you worked with people in campaigns. And I'm one of these hyper-competitive freaks. Um, and I like that you won or lost. Uh, that, that drew it, me to it a lot. So, you know, I started out doing it. And I worked for some people who won. And then when that happens, you get invited to do bigger races. And I started doing international races. And I started a firm uh, in the early 90s. And we were, we were very fortunate. We, we won a, a lot of races. Um, I went down in the spring of 99 to work for uh, then Governor Bush's campaign which, uh, in Austin. You know, in the Bush campaign, it was interesting. They wanted everybody to live in Austin, which I think was very smart. And they wanted everybody to only work on the Bush campaign. There was none of this, you're going to be a consultant and work on other campaigns. And, and that extended all the way to Karl Rove, who had to sell his direct mail company at a huge financial hit. Um, so um, I just kind of continued. I continued working in campaigns and, and writing. Um, and I sort of pursued that, wrote, started writing for television. So that's kind of how I, I ended up pursuing these interests. So given everything that you've been through, everything you've achieved working for Republican politicians up and down the ballot, all around the country, all around the globe. Um, what led you to the Lincoln Project? And, and maybe most specifically, why do you think it's important now? Well, you know, I was drawn uh, to the party that was very optimistic. Uh, and I, I would have said that we, that we disagree on issues uh, within the party, but there's a framework of principles that we, 90% of us, could agree on very quickly. And what were those? It was um, character counts, uh, personal responsibility, um, free trade, strong on Russia, um, pro-legal immigration. Uh, Ronald Reagan announced in 1980 in front of the Statue of Liberty. He signed a bill that, uh, as president who made everyone in the country before 1983 legal. Um, and, and these principles uh, united us. So I look at Donald Trump, and in 2016, I mean, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump, but I think it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Um, I didn't think he'd win the primary. And I didn't think he'd win the general election. And in retrospect, I realized a lot of this is because I didn't want to believe that Donald Trump could win in a party that I had devoted so much time and energy to. I, I was appalled that he won the primary, appalled that when Mitt Romney went out and took this brave stance and, you know, spoke truth to power that so few Republicans followed him. And I was uh, appalled that uh, so many people um, that I'd worked for just sort of rolled over for Trump. Um, you know, in 16, when I was out there beating up on Trump, you know, for all the good it did um, on television a lot. I would get these emails. I mean, I'd say maybe a third of the Republican Party was emailing me, like thanking me for doing this thing. Like, you know, I can't say this, but I'm glad you are. And, you know, right up to about 10 o'clock on election night. And then I started getting emails like, could you delete that maybe? Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I feel the same way I did at eight o'clock on election night. Nothing changed for me. Yeah. Over a year ago, I uh, left my firm. Um, because it's a Republican consulting firm. And uh, I really couldn't keep working for Republicans on the federal level. Now, I worked a lot with governors um, and a lot of 
governor clients. And, you know, you look around and Phil Scott in Vermont, uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. These were all guys that, that worked in their campaigns. And, I, and, I, and they're wildly successful. And if the Republican Party had any sense, they'd look at these guys and say, you're selling our product in the hardest market. What can we do to imitate you, to learn from you? Um, but I, I just couldn't do it. Um, I worked for Bill Weld, uh, who was, I, I worked for him when he ran for governor for the first time in 1990. Uh, it was actually my first governor's race. Um, and, you know, we've had a succession of re- great Republican governors in Massachusetts. But when Weld ran, we hadn't had a Republican governor in over 20 years. And it was just considered, you know, Don Quixote tilting at windmills. He won a huge upset. And uh, then when Weld's candidacy ended, um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to come over uh, and keep fighting. Um, Project Lincoln was a, you guys were doing great stuff and uh, really appreciate being welcomed on board. We are extremely lucky to have you on the team. Uh, I think I think you know that. <laughs> that was a that was a really good overview of of when you left working for Republicans at the federal level. Your book is about the Republican Party and its decline. And I remember about a year ago we had a phone conversation, and I think it was around the same time that you had just left your firm, and it was around the time when Bill Weld was running and. Um, it was the first time we'd talked, and I remember that right off the bat, I told you all of the reasons that I wasn't going to work for Republicans at the federal level and what I thought of the party and how I'd... And when I finally shut up, <laughs> you you said, that's essentially the book I'm writing in a nutshell. And so uh, so it's, it's, it's really fun to now get to have this conversation with you a year later. So now let's move to the book uh, a bit. So there's there's an underlying theme that... Donald Trump didn't hijack the Republican Party, but that he's really the natural outcome of the last 50 years of Republican politics. That's, that's, that's a different way of thinking about Donald Trump. Uh, he's not an aberration. He's actually the, 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 the result of what the Republican Party has been doing, where it's been going, at least at the national level um, for the last 50 years. So can you begin to unpack that for us? And we'll- This is, uh, you know... This is a book I never thought I'd write, and it's a book I never wanted to write. Um, but it's kind of a book I felt ultimately I had to write. Um, and in part, like a lot of books, it started out as a question. You know, how is it that this happened? Um, and I really felt uh, a personal need to try to figure this out. I really forced myself to go back and, and look at a lot of uh, the truth of the party and the history of the party. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. Um, I mean, if you go back to the, the history of the post-World War II Republican Party, there had always been these two uh, strains. In the 50s, it was the Eisenhower strain and the McCarthy strain. And now we look back at William Buckley, for instance, as sort of a lost intellectual voice in the Republican Party, which is true. Um, this brilliant, erudite man. Instead, we have like Sean Hannity now. but at, we tend to forget that in the 50s, you know, William Buckley was a stone cold racist. I mean, he, he uh, wrote a, a famous piece defending segregation. Now, to his great credit, he came to a very different place. But that, that 
tension in the party was always there. And it just played out, uh, continued to play out. Um, in the, I, I talk a lot in the book about this memo that was written by Pat Buchanan and Kevin Phillips in the Nixon White House for their uh, Nixon's reelection in 72. And it's, it's an extraordinary document because it, it really outlines what later became known as the Southern strategy. And it's all about race. It's all about how to uh, sort of sort of the assumption is that we're not going as Republicans be able to get many African-Americans to vote for us. Um, and the best political uh, move is to try to discourage African-Americans from voting. But those who are going to vote to try to uh, help them be disenchanted with the Democratic Party. So, you know, if you go back and uh, this seems like unbelievable, but uh, at least it struck me as that when I was looking at the numbers in 1956, Eisenhower got almost 40 percent of the black vote. 60, uh, Nixon got 33 percent. Then in 64 with Barry Goldwater, it fell off a cliff. Goldwater got 7 percent. He was against the Civil Rights Act. So you could have made a case that after the Civil Rights Act passed, African-Americans in some significant numbers would come back to the Republican Party, that there was enough within that party that would appeal to them. Cultural conservatism, you know, African-American, the community, the church is very important, um, entrepreneurial spirit, um, patriotism, but that never happened. And the failure since 1964, the Republican Party to attract more African-Americans has always been the glaring failure of the party. Now, like those of us in the Bush campaign, you know, and our sort of part of the party, we, we recognized this and acknowledged it. And part of what then Governor Bush calling himself a compassionate conservative was an attempt to, to redefine what it was to be a conservative. And, you know, at the time, uh, Bush got a lot of uh, heat from a number of people on the right uh, who said, well, you call yourself a compassionate conservative. That means that you don't think conservatism is compassionate. And Bush's answer was, yeah, that's right. I don't. I think we failed. And we thought that we saw the dark side, a lot of us, and but we thought it was a recessive gene and that our we were on the right side of history with the party. And we were wrong. I would invite everybody to go read the 2000 uh, acceptance speech that George Bush gave at the Republican convention in Philadelphia. It's an extraordinary document. It reads like something from a lost civilization. You, you cannot believe this was a Republican party then. It's all about humility and service and compassion. I mean, that guy couldn't win 10% in the Republican primary today. So um, it... it my conclusion is that, as I say in the book, the, the original sin of the modern Republican Party is race. And sort of two ways to look at this. One is just in a sort of reality sense. If you spend, say, 90 percent of your, your 90 plus percent of your market comes from one of, of your business comes from one share of the market, you'll probably get really good at talking to that market and not very good at talking to the other 10%. So I think part of this was almost sort of inevitable. Um, but the other is that, that the party really 
you know, had a, 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 an appeal to uh, a racial racist element to it. And now Donald Trump is is a white grievance president. He's basically George Wallace, though I think George Wallace uh, was a lot smarter and had a lot more respect and understanding of the role of government in our lives. And the parties accepted it. And, you know, I think in our system, uh, political parties should form a circuit breaker function. And nobody threw the circuit breaker on Trump. And, you know, to me, it really, the moment, the, t- the turning moment here that people I think will look back in history is in December of 2015 when Trump came out for a Muslim ban, which is completely unconstitutional. It's a religious test. And if nothing else, the Republican Party stood for the Constitution, I thought. And nobody did. I mean, I think what Reince Priebus, who's chairman of the party then, should have gone out and said was uh, the same thing that he said when that guy Todd Aiken, who had been the 2012 Missouri Republican nominee, said terrible things about women and rape. And to his credit, you know, uh, Chairman Priebus went out and said, we can't tell people not to vote for this guy. He's the Republican nominee. We can't replace him. But the Republican Party is not going to support him. And he lost. And it cost us a Senate seat. But it meant that we stood for something. And what Priebus should have done, I think, is go out and say, look, I can't tell people not to vote for Donald Trump. I can't tell Donald Trump not to run. But as long as I'm head of this Republican Party, we're not going to support Donald Trump. We don't believe in a religious test. But instead, we just sort of everybody looked the other way. And I understand why it happened. I mean, if you go back and remember that whole primary dynamic, 16 candidates. Yeah, I remember. And everybody was competing to get one-on-one with Trump. Because everybody was convinced that the Republican Party would never nominate someone who, you know, failed casino owner who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. Like, that wasn't going to happen. And Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine him winning. And it was wrong. I mean, the Republican Party was quite happy to embrace him. So, um, you know, you ask yourself. the how do people abandon deeply held beliefs in three, four years? I don't think they do. I think it only means that you didn't deeply hold those beliefs, that they were more marketing slogans than what you believed. I had to go through my own sort of process deconstructing the way I saw myself in the Republican Party, and it turned out that I didn't fit in it anymore. And as part of that, while I didn't live through the Southern strategy and all of the campaigns during that era, I read as much as I could get my hands on about that period. And what I learned shocked me because it didn't align with what I thought the Republican Party stood for. Um, the, The... we 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 spent a good deal uh, of time in an earlier episode with Tara Setmayer talking about the development of the Southern strategy. I love as her. She's fabulous. A, she's 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 fantastic as, as a way to to win over voters who felt out of place in the pro civil rights Democratic Party. Uh, and I offered some remarks at our Cooper Union event back in February um, about you know, having learned about the Southern strategy and, and, and recognizing that it was really the Republican party's realization 
that they were never going to win a national election ever again because the electoral math was uh, was not available to them. And and going down to the south to convert white Democrats to co-opt the church uh, and to essentially create what appeared to be on the surface ideological positions or philosophical positions out of a cynical electoral calculation because there was no there was no moral or or ideological foundation for those positions it all had to do with winning and what i realized in 2015 and 2016 was that actually winning's all that actually ever mattered well, one of the things i i say and i mean i open this book by saying blame me because uh, uh, this isn't a book that sort of says, "Look what these 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 other people did." I, 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 you know, I was part of this, and you know, I was a classic example of a guy who was only focused on winning. I mean, I was about the taking of Baghdad, not the running of Baghdad. That was like, I don't want to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like run the sewer mm-hmm. system. Like, you know, um, <laughs> what fun is that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I probably represented the worst of the whole political system. I was into being a gunslinger. And look, I was really good at it. And I was really good at winning. And I quickly discovered that the pain of losing was far greater than the, the pleasure of winning. And that sort of drove me to win. And I, in a way, I kind of looked at it like being a lawyer because I came from this whole family of lawyers and judges. And it was kind of the way that maybe I thought about it and in part was a way not to think about it. So, you know, lawyers say, well, I can represent anyone. It doesn't matter if they're guilty or not. Um, part of the American legal system, uh, they deserve a defense. Um, and I sort of felt that way. Now, all the candidates I worked for, I will say I really, I liked them all um, and, and respected them all. And that's part of my incredible um, sort of sadness about this moment. And one of the things I, I say up front in this book is, I don't go through former clients who are now in office and detail where I think they should have done something or so. You know, I didn't want to do sort of like a a bill of indictment for future political war crimes. Um, it, it, it's a collective failure, um, and and I certainly was part of that failure. Um, and you know. I, I I am very, very pessimistic about the future of the Republican Party, which is just bizarre for me because I was that guy in the campaign that always thought we could win. You know, that, that, that we could be down 15 points a week out. And, you know, if only we could come up with the right message, do the right thing, we could still win. Um, I mean, I was sort of <laughs> mocked for this, being the guy who, like, always thought we could win. <laughs> um, you know, and now I'm, you know, incredibly pessimistic. Um, yeah. And I think we're gonna, I, I, I think we're in for a period of very left government um, for a good period of time um, until something else emerges, which it will, but I think it's going to take a long time. I mean, if you look at history, when a major political party validates and embraces hate as the current Republican Party has. To undo that is a long and torturous, often blood-filled process. Um, 
and you know, you, you look at the country. Uh, those who are 15 years of old uh, of age and younger, the majority in America are, are non-white. So there's some reason to believe they're going to turn 18 and remain non-white, and that's sort of like a stage four cancer warning for the Republican Party, as it currently is. Um, yeah. yeah. And one of the things I found so telling here is. It's not just African-Americans. I mean, we used to win Asian-Americans like 70 plus percent. And now we lose them yeah. 70 plus percent. So why is that? It wasn't like we went out and attacked Asian-Americans, at least not until recently when Trump has gone out and attacked the Chinese. But they got the message that if they weren't white, they weren't welcome in the party. And that's the message the party has sent. Um, and people got is, it. You is know? That one, of the, one of the things I've always believed yeah. is to really respect voters. You know, I, I, I think voters are very smart. And uh, we all get all this stuff about low information voters and high information. I don't know. I think voters are pretty good at picking up the essence of candidates. Is, wait, is that what you mean uh, when you talk about this perception that Republicans don't win a higher percentage of votes from, from black people because of a communications issue? Well, you know, this was a thing. It was always this idea. Like, the Republican Party should appeal to African Americans. We're conservative. Yeah. We're entrepreneurial, um, patriotic. And the reason that African Americans aren't supporting the Republican Party in, you know, any serious numbers is just that we don't know how to communicate this to African-Americans, which is not a crazy theory. So, you know, there, there was uh, this whole industry of African-American Republican consultants who would come talk to you at a campaign, get a white candidate, mostly white staff usually, to explain to you how to talk to black voters. <laughs> and... You know, I think that was completely misguided. I think African-Americans understood exactly what we were saying. They just didn't like it. And there was always this tension that still exists. And you see it played out in tragic numbers with COVID-19. So we were the party that we all laughed and embraced this idea when Ronald Reagan went out and said, you know, the, the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help. We thought that was great. It was both a great mm -hmm. joke and it was also, you know, sort of said to spoke to a truth that we believed. So how do you square that with those in our society who look to government as one of the key ways to advance themselves uh, in life? And it's a it, it's a circle we never squared. And it just couldn't. We never came to grips with that. We tried in the Bush campaign in 2000, you know. I think had Bush not become a wartime president, I think it could have happened. I mean, if you go back, you know, Bush was driven by education. He knew a lot about education. He had a real passion for it. You know, in that campaign, whenever we didn't know what to do, like, you know how it is, you look at a schedule, like you want to go into a market, what are you going to do? Our default was to go to a school, usually a school with underprivileged kids. And Governor Bush would light up like a Christmas tree, and he just loved it. And uh, what was the first legislation of significance that he passed? No Child Left Behind, 
which, you know, you go back, he, he's signing this thing in the Oval Office with Ted Kennedy on his right shoulder. I mean, that sort of thing would be used now at like a war crimes trial in the Republican Party. Um, how dare how dare you? You know, and there. I think that's, you know, he governed that way in Texas, which had a, a dominant Texas uh, conservative, but Democratic legislation, legislature. Um, and it's Bush's nature to work with people. Um, you know, we used to, he used to say, I mean, unite or not a divider. It was true. It's just how he looked at life. Um, and all of that sort of became secondary when 9-11 happened. And there's sort of a part of the game amongst those of us who worked for Bush, some of us, you know, what, what would have been like for Bush presidency and what it would have done if there hadn't been a wartime president. And, you know, it, it occurred to me recently, <laughs> I don't know why it took me so long, but I was at the gym and I was watching Nicole Wallace and it occurred to me, like, there's a group of us that we literally all used to sit in the same room in the campaign. Me, Nicole, Steve Schmidt would be in that room sometimes. Michael Gerson, who writes for The Post, who wrote Bush's beautiful 2000 acceptance speech. Pete Weiner, who's a writer, who writes for Atlantic and New York Times now. Um, Mark McKinnon, who, uh, you know, really ran the media show in 2000. I, I really worked for Mark in 2000. Um, in 2004. And we've all come to the same place about Trump. And it's not like we got together, but it's just so abhorrent to what we thought we aspired to. And it's not like, the, you know, in the Bush campaign, we were perfect. I mean, God knows uh, we played too much to the dark side, I'm sure. But we aspired to something bigger than ourselves. And for Trump, that's a weakness. You know, Trump tells you that that side of you that like you're in traffic, somebody cuts you off, you have that little spurt of road rage. That's your best self. That if you let that person cut you off, you're weak. You need to embrace that. Mm. It's that score-settling grievance side that is the essence of Trumpism. And, you know, when Ronald Reagan was president, to be born in America was to win life's lottery. You're the luckiest person on earth. Now, as an American in Trump's America, you're a sucker. You're, you're at the mercy of these powerful forces that have taken advantage of you, like Canada. And, you know, we're going to go out and settle the score. And it's just a... With Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Canada. Now we can't even go to Canada. Um, right. So it's just a very different vision of the world and what it means to be an American, in essence. And that's what, you know, yeah. when the Lincoln Project uses the slogan, uh, America or Trump. To me, that's what it means. And like all great slogans, uh, that, that can mean different things to different people. But to me, that's what it means. Who do you see yourself as an American? I'm the person that believes to be born in America. You've won life's lottery. These differences between George W. Bush and Donald Trump aren't just personality differences. They're fundamental differences in approaches to leadership altogether. What do you think Donald Trump's approach to leadership, if you can call it that, which I don't think I don't think you can, what do you think that has done? to the American psyche, to the American people, the experience of being an American. And like you said, that feeling of having won the lottery. You know, Trump, Trump has validated our worst side. 
And all of us as individuals have dark sides. I mean, we all have bitterness about this or that or grievances. We think back to things that, you know, we feel like we didn't get our fair shake. That happens to everybody in life. And Trump tells you that's your best self. That you really, you know, you, you should embrace that bitterness and that anger. And that you shouldn't work and aspire to something bigger. So, I mean, you look at the 1930s in America. So why is it that all these countries in Europe, very similar to the United States, became fascist? Why did Germany? Why did Italy? Um, There's a lot of German-Americans. There's a lot of Italian-Americans. Why didn't we? Well, it's interesting. Um, There was a strong fascist movement in America, the America First movement, headed by a great hero, Charles Lindbergh. And had Lindbergh been elected president, we probably would have become fascist and we would have been the same country. But we elected Roosevelt. So I think leaders matter. And, you know, I say about Trump is, you know, if we elected a bank robber president, it's not that bank robbing would become legal, but it probably would become less of a social stigma. Like, oh, well, you can be bank robber and president. And I think it's the same about Trump and racism. You don't have to be a racist to vote for Trump. And, you know, whenever you talk about this, you know, my experience is people immediately, particularly Trump people, they get in your face and say, are you saying that there's 63 million racists in America? Well, first of all, there probably are 63 million racists in America. So (laughs) settle down. Let's not get like crazy here. 320 million. We'd be lucky if there only are 63 million. That's that's like lowballing the number. But it's not that you have to be an active racist to support Trump. But I think that you have to be willing to accept that what you're getting from Trump is more important than having a racist as president. And I think that's sort of soul crushing. You know, we talk about Faust and, and the Faustian bargain. And what people forget about Mesistopheles is not just that he takes your soul, but he doesn't deliver. You don't get anything in return. And that's really, I think, what's happened with Trump, you know. All these people say, well, I voted for him for judges, conservative judges, which has just kind of become this thing that Republicans say. They, they have no idea what it means. I mean, next time somebody says that to you, just, you know, ask them, okay, that's interesting. What are the five most important Supreme Court decisions of the last 10 years, in your opinion? Yeah. They can't name them. Yeah. They have no they idea. They can't name them. And I think it's also because they, they confuse conservative conservative judges, and I put air quotes around them, with conservative jurisprudence, which are two completely two completely different, different things. And, yeah. you know, that's why you're going to always be perpetually disappointed by, you know, if it's Souter or it's Roberts or, you know, yeah. Gorsuch recently. I mean, you're, yeah. you're always, if that's how you're going to yeah. look at life, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. <laughs> and yeah. it, it, it's not the role of the judiciary in our system. So right. I, what, what I just find most striking about this moment is, I don't know what it means to be a Republican now. I don't know what it means to be a conservative. If somebody held a gun to my head and said, tell me what it means to be a conservative in America in 2020, I'd say, shoot, go ahead, because this isn't going to work. I can't tell you. I have no idea. And, you know. That's exactly what I say. Say what, what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She can articulate a coherent theory of government. Now, you can think that's the worst theory you ever heard in your life. You can think it's the greatest, but you can argue with it. And she will defend it. And she will be articulate. We don't have anybody of significance who can do that in the Republican Party with credibility. Beyond probably Mitt Romney. And his credibility to be able to do this is undermined by the party. 
So, I mean, we're going to go out and talk about national debt? Really? I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, what are we going to do if, say, if, if, you know, Elizabeth Warren, president of the United States, and wanted to send a yoga mat to everybody, we're going to say, like, we can't afford it? Like, really? Are you kidding me? After Trump? I mean, after what we've done to the deficit? Is this one area, fiscal conservatism, do you think this is one area where the Republican Party's commitment to or historical commitment to fiscal responsibility has been a charade? Yes, and I do think it's been a charade. And uh, which is why, you know, you look at the history of the deficit, it goes up higher when we have Republican presidents. Why does it persist? Because the voters like to hear it? Why do people say that they're going to lose weight and don't? Mm -hmm. You want to believe both. You know, you want to believe you could do it, but you also want to keep eating. So you think you like the idea, like I'm fiscally conservative. That's like a good thing. It's good. But you don't want to be fiscally conservative because that can bring pain. So, you know, you're the alcoholic at the bar who says you can quit tomorrow, but you never do. Um, it's, you know, George Bush, you said this saying, I always loved it. He goes, you know, a lot of the hard things never get done because they're hard. And being a fiscal conservative is hard. And it takes discipline. And we haven't had the discipline uh, to do it. We haven't had the, since Graham-Rudman legislation, we haven't had a, a mandatory physical structure that forced us to do it like a lot of states do, where they're required by law to balance their budget. So it hasn't happened. Uh, I think with terrible consequences uh, for the future, terrible consequences now. Do you think voters actually care? I don't think voters give a damn. That's part of the problem. It's the numbers are meaningless. You know, they're too big. I, I, I was hired by HBO to write this four-hour movie about a, about Katrina in New Orleans. And it was really about how Katrina happened with the government. And HBO ended up never making this, but I spent a lot of time with it. And, you know, a lot of money was allocated to build levees in New Orleans that didn't go to building levees. And there was a longtime governor of, a uh, longtime mayor of New Orleans, Moon Landrow, his daughter became a senator. His uh, son became lieutenant governor and governor. And Moonlandro famously said, nobody ever voted for a levy. And he built, he took the money and he built this thing you see in New Orleans around the French Quarter called the Moonwalk, which was this great tourist attraction of this riverside walk. He just diverted levy money for that. And it helped him get elected. And people could like go out on the Moonwalk. That was like a good thing. And I think that sort of phenomenon carries on. People mm. vote for what they get, not what they don't get. So I don't think voters mm. care. I mean, look at all these southern states, like my home state of Mississippi. 40% of the budget in Mississippi comes from the federal government. And you know, we get three and a half dollars back for every dollar that we pay in taxes. And yet we go out and we attack California. I mean, one for hardworking taxpayers in California, Mississippi, would just blow away. Or in New York, we attack New York. I mean, the ultimate yeah. welfare states are these red southern states, Alabama, Louisiana. Yeah. 
South Carolina. I mean, when Nikki Haley goes out and rails against socialism, it's like, really? You want to give away the... Okay. Uh, You want to give back that money from the federal government? Because that's kind of socialism. Um, It's just a sort of disingenuous phoniness about it. Do you think it has to do with more of a culture conflict, a cultural war, than it does the actual merits of the, the budget? The fundamental problem with the Republican Party is that it's not very diverse. And there are a lot of problems in the Democratic Party that come from diversity. I mean, you have the Bernie Sanders wing and you, you know, you have Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a long walk from one to another. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. And you don't have that in the, in the Republican Party. So, you know, if you take a 45-year-old uh, Republican school teacher, they're probably white, and what they think about taxes is probably the same as a 45-year-old hedge fund manager who's probably white. In the Democratic Party, you take a 45-year-old teacher, and what they think about taxes is probably different than a 45-year-old hedge fund manager who's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And that diversity is ultimately a strength of the Democratic Party because it reflects more of the country. It stops it from being captured by one set or another. We used to talk a lot about being a big tent in the Republican Party and saw that as an aspirational goal. Nobody really talks about that anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, the last time, last time that came up was in that. I think the last time that came up in earnest was after 2012. Yeah. So, the, so let's the, talk the, about that. So the, Rom- Romney loses. Romney yeah. loses in 2012. Right. Yeah. uh commissions this so-called autopsy to, to examine why the parties lost. It was called the Growth and Opportunity Report for right. anybody who wants to look it up. Yes. It's incredibly depressing yeah. if you go back and read it. Um, and look, yeah. I think I think Ryan's deserved a lot of credit for that. It's hard to be self-critical, any organization. Um, and look, the conclusions were pretty obvious. We need to appeal more to women. We need to appeal more to non-whites. We need to appeal more to younger voters. And this was presented, if you read it, and this is really important, it was presented not just as a political mandate, but as a moral necessity. That if we're going to be a governing yes. party for this loud, growing, changing uh, America, we needed to reflect that. So then Trump comes along. And there's almost like an audible sigh of relief that oh, we go, oh, God, we can, don't have to pretend we care about that stuff anymore. <laughs> we can win just with white people. <laughs> Thank God. This is really tiring. Um, and it's exhausting it, being it, diverse. Yeah, it's like, oh, Jesus, we have to pretend we care about these other people. And it, it, uh, it just showed the phoniness of it. Uh, they're perfectly happy yeah. being a whites-only party if they can keep winning as a whites-only party. You know, I mean, there's this industry in America now analyzing how Donald Trump won, Trump voters, blah, blah, blah. But look. Trump won with 46.1%. Mitt Romney lost with 47.2%. So on one very fundamental level, Trump won because he ran in a year and with 46.1% was enough to win as a Republican. Had Romney run in that year, he would have won overwhelmingly. I mean, look at Wisconsin. Uh, Romney lost Wisconsin by seven points. Trump won by uh, a little under one point. Romney got more votes. <laughs> I mean, it was just a different year. So uh, that sort of critical decision that the party had to make and force itself to stay to 
are we going to expand or are we going to double down on being a white party? Uh, pretty much they're throwing in the towel and expanding. And we've just thrown in the, now we're, I mean, uh, I can't tell you how soul crushing it was as a, as a seventh generation Mississippian who's named for Jeb Stewart. The finally in Mississippi, our state flag was basically the Confederate battle flag. And right. a few weekends ago, they voted, the state legislature did to take it down and we'll have a new flag yet to be yeah. determined. And yeah. at that same time, yeah. Donald Trump is defending Confederate monuments. Yeah. And, and refuses to condemn the flag itself, Yeah, which, which by the way, I, you know, I just, I just learned this recently, but the Confederate flag, and I, and I think maybe most people who aren't exposed to it on a regular basis and, and don't, or don't live in or near the South, see it as the Confederate flag and they, and they understand, I mean, now they understand it stands for racism. They understand it stands for treason now, but I think something, something I learned was that the Confederate flag, as we know it, is a Confederate battle flag. It was flown during the yes, war. Confederate battle flag. When, yeah. right, exactly, yeah. And and so when we when we hear claims of heritage or history or or legacy, what we're actually looking at is a flag that was flown uh, in the middle of the Civil War uh, against the North. Um, you know, when, I mean, look, as um, part of the battle you know, yeah. I had a great, great, great uh, uncle that fought, you know, rode with Mosby in the, in the Civil War, came back and had seven sons and named them all for Confederate cavalry generals. So it's only the luck of the draw that I'm not, my first name isn't Zollicoffer. I actually have relatives named Zollicoffer. I got Jeb Stewart. <laughs> I could have been Zolly. Um, but I mean, uh, it, it, when I grew up in the South, you know, we didn't really celebrate the 4th of July because it was when Vicksburg and Gettysburg fell. Um, mm. I mean, I wrote a piece about this prompted by the taking down of the Mississippi flag. You can't, it's difficult to understand unless you're a Southerner uh, what the Confederate flag meant at the University of Mississippi, right? So I wrote, I wrote a book after the Romney campaign. I found that losing makes you much more reflective than winning. Uh, I uh, went out the f next fall, and my dad had just turned 95. And when I was growing up in Mississippi, a lot of the way my dad and I bonded was by going to college football games, particularly Ole Miss games. So when he was 95, the fall of 2013, he and I and my mom, we went to all the Ole Miss games that season. And I wrote a book about it. I used it as a framework to write a book called The Last Season. Um, and I write about it a lot in that book. but you know. Uh, University of Mississippi, I mean, Mississippi, I think, is the most southern state. I think University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, is the most southern university. So when I went to these games, you know, at halftime, they would roll out what was billed as the largest Confederate flag. As the whole field. I, I can remember being like a kid and thinking, like, what is the second largest Confederate flag? Like, how big is that? Um, and they would throw, you know, the cheerleaders would throw bundled Confederate flags in the stadium, and we'd all sing Dixie, and at the end, we'd shout, the South shall rise again. I mean, the Mississippi College band, their uniforms were the Confederate battle uniforms. I mean, up until, like, you know, eight years ago. You know, at, at, which, wow. at which point, maybe like a fourth or more of the band was black. Um, you, had, you had Colonel Reb, who was the mascot. and it was this whole 
culture of the lost cause. Um, you know, in 1861, the entire student body of Ole Miss, all men, of course, uh, mustered out and joined the uh, Confederate Army in the 1st Mississippi Regiment. Um, they did it on that uh, area on the Ole Miss campus called the Grove, which is now sort of famous as being sort of the greatest tailgate pre-football college scene in America. Um, and, you know, in Gettysburg, they led Pickett's charge. I mean, 85% casualties which was not particularly good for the gene pool in Mississippi. You know, when you take the you know, people who are going to university and kill 85% of them. Um, and it was there in 1962 when Ole Miss was integrated by James Meredith that really the last battle of the Civil War was fought right there on the Grove. It took 30,000 troops to integrate one African-American into the University of Mississippi. I mean, now the only time you'd ever riot over something like that at Ole Miss is if an African-American athlete committed to Ole Miss and then like decommitted and went to Alabama. You know, it would be like, <laughs> he's not going to come to Ole Miss, we're going to riot. Um, yeah. So just the culture of this is so ingrained. Um, and, I, you know, uh, I think Ole Miss, to its credit, has gone through a lot of soul searching. I know it has. And. It's been very hard, and I think Mississippi's gone through a lot of soul-searching. And it's so dispiriting to see this, you know, guy from Queens whose family didn't even live in America in the Civil War, whose family, you know, has never fought in any war. They have a history of being draft dodgers to go back generations. Um, to celebrate, you know, talk about our heritage. It's like, what are you talking about your heritage, dude? I mean, you're like some rich Yankee from Queens. You know, what are you talking about? Um, yeah. And it, it's so uh, just uh, dispiriting to see this. And, and it's the wrong side of history. I mean, I, I can tell you that. I mean, you take your average teenager in Mississippi now, white teenager, they'd a lot rather be a, a, a famous black rap artist than Robert E. Lee. I mean, their cultural, we, their cultural icons <laughs> are not the Civil War. <laughs> They're not looking at the Confederate yeah. flag. You know, you know, I mean, these states, places like Mississippi, there really is this deep, deep desire to move beyond all this. And it's complicated and it's a mess. And part of it is economic because it's, it hurts the state so economically. Part of it is just because it's wrong as a human being. But there's, it's a painful process. And it's a process that the state continues to go through. Um, and Trump is just, you know, the idea that you had this guy's chief of staff, General Kelly of the White House, arguing that slavery isn't the cause of the Civil War. It's like, dude, did you ever, they wrote what was the cause of the Civil War. Each state did, the Articles of Secession. You ever read them? They're all about slavery. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, that the Republican Party has embraced that. Uh, I, I just find uh, incredibly depressing. Um, and it's an extension of, look, it's all about hate. I mean, what Trump announces, in the, what was his campaign about? Hating Muslims, hating Mexicans. Hating, you know, yeah. calling a, a, a judge from Indiana a Mexican. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Trump Trump is... The list is too long to recite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 
if anybody is a perfect example of an immigrant who didn't assimilate in America, it's Donald Trump. Oh. He never absorbed American values. And mm. it's uh, he and the Murdochs. They never understood, you know, what it's to be American. Um, and, you know, there's always been a hate industry in America. Um, uh, always has been. I mean, in the 30s, you had Father Coughlin and... Um, it just never was a dominant industry. I mean, Breitbart, the hate industry. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you, you wouldn't let some freak like Steve Bannon near a campaign. I mean, all these people around Trump, they all wanted to be in campaigns before. Believe me, I was there. But nobody wanted them. Corey Lewandowski, uh, uh, the, the Stephen Miller, all these, Jason Miller. Jason Miller was an intern of mine. You know, I continue to apologize to the world for it. I mean, nobody would hire these people because uh, they were very good and they were all sort of damaged human beings. Um, and that's who Trump attracts. You know, you look at this guy, Chad Wolf, who's running, you know, Homeland Security. He's just this low-level kind of do-nothing bureaucrat who became sort of a small-town lobbyist. I mean, who started Homeland Security? Tom Ridge. So I worked for Tom Ridge, last Republican elected, re-elected governor of Pennsylvania. So Ridge grows up in public housing, veteran assistant public housing. He's the first ever to graduate from college in his family. Got a scholarship to Harvard. Went to Vietnam. Refused to be an officer. He's one of the few people to go to Vietnam who was a college graduate, Ivy League graduate, who didn't take an officer's commission because he wanted to be a grunt. Bronze Star goes back to Erie as a prosecutor, gets elected governor. And uh, that, that's a great man. And you heard what he said today about Wolf, like, you know, hell would freeze over before I would let out-of-state federal right. goons come into my state. This is talking about Portland and uh, yeah. the, the federal, federal troops, essentially, who are taking protesters off of the street in unmarked cars without names on their yeah. uniforms. This is all very alarming. Well, this is why, the, this is why Project Lincoln is so important. Because Project Lincoln is a way to defeat Trump. And it's a way to defeat Trumpism. And it's really, I mean, John Weaver uses this phrase, you know, the, the, the coalition of the decent. And that's really what this is about. I mean, listen, man, I, I, these people say, some people say to me, you know, these Democrats, they attacked Romney unfairly. How can you? I look at George Bush, right? So George Bush's father was attacked viciously. I mean, here's a guy at 18 years old was the youngest Navy pilot, was shot down, rescued, a war hero, and the press called him a wimp. And Democrats uh, uh, attacked him. But George Bush, his son, wasn't bitter. He still was positive. And, and, and Bill Clinton defeated his father. And Bill Clinton and George Bush have bonded and do a lot of good things together for a greater cause. That's, that's who you want to be. And, you know... I worked against a lot of these Democrats. I mean, we went up against each other all the time. Sometimes they won, sometimes I won. Uh, I think a lot of things that was done by the Obama campaign, some things went beyond the mark. 
but you have to look beyond that. And, and, and to a greater sort of unifying principle. And I, if you're not against Trumpism, it, it's just as a nihilistic vision to me. This is a good, I have, I have two, two closing questions for you. And this is a good segue to the first one, which is that we get a lot of questions uh, from people about how they can talk to their friends and family who may still vote for Donald Trump, may not. And, and you know how if you're in that echo chamber, you're in that political culture, it can feel very lonely. When you start to feel that, you know, tugging at your conscience, when you know you've gotten in too deep to something that you can't reconcile, uh, that isn't right. You just know it isn't right. What advice would you have for those people and for anyone who wants to talk to their family members, their friends, their contacts, who they think are sincerely struggling with who to vote for? You know, most of our life isn't spent involved in politics. You're involved in your family, your church. Boy Scouts, your school, your neighborhood, you know, whatever charities you're involved in. So, so I say, so like, what if you had a Boy Scout leader who was like Donald Trump? Would you want your kid to be in that troop? I mean, what, what, what if Donald Trump was a coach? Do you want him to coach your kid? What if he's a teacher? What if he you know, ran a, a local uh, plant? Would you want him as a boss? So why would we want him as president? He's just a terrible human being. I mean, do you teach your kids to be like Donald Trump? No one does. That matters. You know, one of the things that just blows my mind about this is, you know, as Republicans, we said culture was the most important thing in a country. The culture defined the soul of a country. And if you go back and you read, you know, William Bennett's beautiful book, a, a book of virtue, and he later wrote a book about the necessity, yeah, necessity to uh, impeach Clinton. And now those people are for Donald Trump. How do you square that? I mean, people say to me, well, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, well, what about Bill Clinton? I go, I was against Bill Clinton. <laughs> I worked against Clinton. I haven't changed. I thought Clinton was a disgrace. I mean, the, in the Bush campaign, really the only message we had that really moved numbers was restoring honor and dignity to the White House. I mean, that Bush won that 2000 election is just incredible. I mean, on election day, consumer confidence was the highest it had ever been on any election day since we tracked consumer confidence. That's that's an election in which an incumbent should win. And Bush, I remember vividly. It was was a bit of a nail biter, though. Yeah, I know. I mean, we used to joke in the Bush campaign, you know, like, Anybody can win when you get more votes. It takes professionals when you get fewer votes, which used to seem funnier than it does now. You know, if you talk to, you know, I've always been struck. And if you talk to anybody who's been a foreign correspondent for a while and gone around the world in troubled war zones, one of the things that they always talk about in my experience is how fast a society can deteriorate. And there's no reason that can't happen in America. I mean, look, look at, you know, how does the Sarajevo Olympic Stadium go from being an Olympic Stadium to eight years later a torture center? It's the same people. There's nothing to say that, that, that America, what, what holds America together will continue to hold America together. 
what is best about America. And what, what angers me the most and disgusts me the most about these current Republicans is, you know, they're heir to the greatest generation. So, you know, my father was a classic example. He was like millions. Of, he, he went in the Navy. He, he, was, he was an FBI agent, really liked being an FBI agent. Uh, he was in New York City basically chasing spies. Uh, then he was ordered to round up Asian Americans. And he did it for one day, then he quit. And, you know, as he used to always tell me, you know, you can always say no. And he went in the Navy. So he spent three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings, came back and built a life like millions of these guys. And that's the legacy that's been inherited by these current Republican politicians, all politicians. And, you know, courage isn't standing up to some fat, ridiculous figure like Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you just got shot. And they don't have that. They don't have the courage to stand up to Donald Trump. I mean, no one can tell me if these current Republicans had been around in like 1775, we still wouldn't be celebrating the Queen's birthday. I mean, what would they say? What, what we're going to fight? The, you know what they'd say. We're going to fight the king, the most powerful army in the world. Are you crazy? We're just going to work this thing out. And they're just, they're just weak. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us. They're more afraid of, yeah. yeah, they're more afraid of tweets than their predecessors were of bullets. Yes. And, and, and maybe that should not surprise us. Maybe cowardice is the norm and courage is the exception. But I think they're a disgrace. And, you know, I look at these, so many that I helped elect, and, you know, I, I just kind of feel ashamed that I helped elect them. You know, none of us go through life, or very few of us go through life. Certainly, I don't go through life looking for moral tests. You know, I mean, like, I try to spend my life avoiding moral tests. It's, like, uncomfortable. But Donald Trump was a moral test. And the Republican Party failed. And I think that's pretty unforgivable and weak. And I think that's, you know... And it's our responsibility to write that wrong. Yeah, and and the Lincoln Project, the Project Lincoln is really trying to be the courage that they don't have. And what I don't get, Ron, is, you know, most politicians have pretty big egos, which doesn't bother me in the least. Great athletes, artists, musicians have big egos. But why is it that they can't see how they're going to be remembered? And I'm not talking remembered in 50 Mm -hmm. years. I'm talking about remembered in three years. You know, I mean... Mm -hmm. George Wallace, as governor, actually did some good stuff. He, like, passed free textbooks. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You were the George Wallace guy. And that's how it's going to be with Trump. You're not going to be remembered as the, well, we lowered marginal corporate tax rates Trump guy. Because nobody cares. Nobody cares. You're going to be the Trump guy. You'll be the Trump guy. Yeah. And it uh, that's how it is. I mean, I think that Mitch McConnell thinks that Donald Trump's going to be remembered as his fool, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be the other way around. Stuart, I have one last question for you. I've asked several other guests to tell us what they would say if they had five minutes alone with Donald Trump in a room, just just the two of you. There's nobody watching. There's no cameras, nothing. What do you say to, to the man? 
Well, the first thing I'd say is resign. Um, but uh, listen, I think that Donald Trump is a very broken human being um, for a lot of reasons. You can read Mary Trump's book, but he's, he's a deeply disturbed individual. The only thing Trump cares about is self-preservation. So, you know, what I would say to Trump is, look, forget doing the right thing because it's decent. But the right thing is actually in your best interest. So it's better for you if Americans aren't dying from COVID-19. So like, get your shit together and focus on this. And that's going to help you in a very personal sense. And, you know, give up on all this hate Confederacy stuff because it's not going to work. Ronald Reagan won a sweeping landslide, 1980, 44 states with 55% of the white vote. John McCain lost with 55% of the white vote. So don't, just because you won this freak election in 16, don't think that by stirring up hate like this, you're going to be able to win again. So in your own best interest, try to pretend that you're a better person. And I think that's the only way to communicate to him. I think the man, you know, he's a gangster. He cares about nothing. That's why he has this, you know, thuggish family around him. He's just a gangster. So the only way to deal with a gangster is to show him that it's in his own best interest. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get, and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.